On the sixth day, the heavens and the earth and all their hosts were completed. And God ceased from his labors and rested on the seventh day. And God blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. He made it a day of rest and refreshing to be a sign between him and all of Israel. We thank God for the joy of life. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Borei Prihagahafin Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. We thank God for our daily provision. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Amotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth and has given us the true bread from heaven in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has hallowed us with your commandments, has desired us, and has given us in love and goodness your holy Shabbat as a heritage, in remembrance of the work of creation, the first of the holy festivals, commemorating the exodus from Egypt. For you have chosen us and sanctified us from among all the nations with love and goodness, and have given us your holy Shabbat as a heritage. Blessed are you, O Lord, who hallows the Shabbat. Amen the blessings over wives, mothers, and widows. May the Lord bless you as you care and nurture our families. May he bless and strengthen your hands as you serve the needs of others. May your children rise up and call you blessed. May your husband value you above riches and glory. May the Lord clothe you with dignity and adorn you with loving kindness. The blessings over our children May the Lord bless and keep you. May he look upon you with a smile. May he watch over you and protect you from harm. And to our sons, may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. To our daughters, may you be as Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and welcome to B'nai Shalom. This Sabbath, our Torah portion comes from the book of Numbers, chapter 13, and it, in the Hebrew is shalak lakha, and it's the words that come from verse 2, send out, or send for yourself. And we're about to read the story of when the children of Israel were approaching the promised land the first time. They had left Mount Sinai, and they were thought they were going up to the promised land, and they decided that before they actually enter into the promised land, they would send spies into the land to check the land out, see if it was good land, see which path they should go. Now, there's a real strange irony here in this whole thing, and that is God has been leading them out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, across the wilderness to Mount Sinai, has led them to getting ready to go in the promised land, and all of a sudden they get the idea, no, it would be better if we sent spies in at this point. You know, like God's not capable of really leading us into the land correctly. We we need to get involved and figure out what's going on. 
fundamentally, that's part of the problem that's going to take place here. They think that's a good idea, and God allowed them to do it. He allowed them to do it because he knew there was going to be an incredible lesson that was going to come out of this. Turn with me now to chapter 13, beginning at verse 2. It says, Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm going to give to the sons of Israel. And you shall send a man from each of your father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. So all tribes are represented to us. And we have a listing now from each tribe. Who is it that goes out? I want you to know verse 6. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb is now the man representing the tribe of Judah. When we first came out of across the Red Sea, do you remember the name of the guy that was the prince of Judah when they first got started? It was a man named Nakshan. Nakshan is not in this list. Caleb is now the leader of particularly the tribe of Judah, and he will team up with Joshua, and Joshua is from the tribe of Ephraim, and the two of them, tribe of Judah, tribe of Ephraim, they're going to be the spies that go in the land that don't reject the land. They say the land is good, but all the other tribes are going to have a real problem with what they see in the land, and this is what this passage is beginning to tell us. Let me then take you now to verse 17. And when Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, Go up there into the Negev, then go up into the hill country and see what the land is like, and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and how is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? And how are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or are they have fortifications? And how is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort to get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. When do we think this was? This was in the middle of summer. That's when the first ripe grapes come out. And if you remember the sequence, they had come out from the Passover out of Egypt, had gone, received the law, they had, and, and so forth. Then there was a year in which they had the tabernacle, and the tabernacle was built on the 1st of Nisan, which is the same month, a year before they'd come out. So we had the springtime over it. So now we're proceeding to land. Guess what season is? It's summer, the time of the first ripe grapes. So they're going to dispatch these spies to go in and check out the land. And here's the list that Moses gave to him. And he actually gave them seven specific objectives. And the last one was, get some of the fruit. So they go up into it, and it says here in verse 23 that they came to the valley of Escol, and from there cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two men with some of the pomegranates and the figs. Escol means cluster. And so they gathered up grapes, they gathered up figs, and they gathered up pomegranates, and they brought them back on a pole. These two guys got a pole, and they're carrying all this fruit. By the way, that's the symbol for the ministry of tourism in Israel today. I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a very famous image of two spies carrying a pole and carrying a whole bunch of grapes, a big thing of grapes. 
And the Ministry of Tourism in Israel uses this as their symbol. And the thing that we always say when you make a trip to Israel these days is you're going in to spy out the land. So when you get on a tour to Israel, you're going to spy the land out. You're going to go see what the land's like, just like the witnesses went in and saw what the land was like when you make a tour to Israel. They've taken this biblical theme and story, and they've used it for the Ministry of Tourism to modern-day Israel today. We go a little bit further. Verse 25, And when they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, and they brought back the word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Now here's the report that the spies are going to come back. They're going to give after they done spent 40 days in the land, brought some of the fruit back. This is what they're going to say. Hey, let's go back to your verse. Verse 27. Thus they told them and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, all living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. That doesn't sound like it's very welcoming. And essentially, that's what the spies said. Hey, you know, they're laying the case out. We can't do this. Quite honestly, there's too many ites there. You know, Amorites, Jebusites, all. Too many ites there. Yes, the land is wonderful. Here's some of its fruit. But it's like going to a fruit stand and coming back because we can't really live there. We, there's too many people there. They're way more than us. That is really a very interesting statement for them to make. We just got through earlier in the book of Numbers, before they ever went and did this, there were 603,550 men in the army, in the army of Israel. 600,000 troops. And they're describing the problem as though we got to take on everybody at the same time. If you go back and look at the history of the conquest of the promised land, it was one city at a time. It was one area at a time. Joshua led the armies and they defeated each of the areas. And they surely would have done the same thing here. The Lord was with them. But the Lord, you see, is hanging back quiet. Let's see what's in their hearts. What's in their hearts is fear. What's in their hearts is they're lazy. Oh, I thought he was just going to give it to us. A lot of brethren come to faith, and they begin to learn about the faith, and they hear about these wonderful things about how gracious God is, how wonderful and loving and giving he is, and so forth. And for some reason, some of them get the idea that, well, I just get to kick back now. My sins are forgiven. I don't have to do nothing in the faith. God's going to give me everything. Well, they do that for a while, and nothing happens. And they go, well, I guess this faith doesn't work very much. They start asking a few things, and the Lord doesn't seem to respond the way they thought the Lord would respond. Say, I thought yeah, we are under his grace. We're going to receive all this unmerited favor. He's just going to heap it on us. You know, 
everything I want. God has not promised to give you anything you want. God has promised to only give you what you need. And if you're sitting there lazy as all get out, I guess you don't need much, do you? And for some reason, the average Christian doesn't quite figure this out. If you really want to have an active relationship with God, and you want to see him meeting your needs and being active in your life, guess what? You need to learn to obey the Lord, walk with the Lord, do the things the Lord is interested in, not the things you want to do, do the things he wants to do with your life. So here they come back, they give this report, and I think a lot of the children of Israel just thought the promised land is supposed to be handed to them on a silver platter. Well, God said he would take them in the land and he would remove those inhabitants so that they could dwell there, but he didn't say it was going to be handed on a silver platter. He hadn't really told us how he was going to do it yet, but they'd already made the assumption of how this was all going to work, and since it wasn't going to work out according to their assumption, they balked. They rebelled. Now, countering that report, we have Joshua and Caleb. Verse 30, then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against this people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to some of the sons of Israel a bad report of the land in which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone is, is spying out. It's a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in the men of great size. They go further. Here also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. You know what, you know what he's saying? I mean, this is how bizarre this was. See, we got inside the head of some of the inhabitants in the land, and we looked out through their eyeballs at what we looked like. And from their perspective, the way they saw, we looked like grasshoppers. Well, grasshoppers are real small. They're down on the ground. And so they give this, this crazy metaphor to say how they were able to see themselves through the eyes of the inhabitants, and we look like grasshoppers. Do you know how absurd that sounds like? How unbelievable silly that sounds. This is the official report from the spies of the army of Israel back to the leaders of Israel. Just on this report alone, somebody ought to slap some sense into them. That's stupid. That is not the way a military man would report. We've got Joshua and Caleb says, we will overcome them. Let's go. You know, they're fired up, ready to do it. Not these guys. They're borderline cowards at this point. By the way, let me go ahead and tell you something, that God takes a very dim view toward a believer who turns into a coward concerning him. He does not like that. There are a lot of things that we can misbehave and do and sin against God. The one I would recommend to you that you not ever do is don't represent God and then behave like a coward. 
That brings discredit on the Lord, and it's blasphemy, to tell you the truth, brethren. It's very bad. You do not want to do this. Well, here's the spies coming back, 10 of them, and this is their report and the way they're speaking. Let me go ahead and read, continue back here. We should turn back from following the Lord, and the Lord will not be with you. And Joshua and Caleb gave a positive report. Well, that night, the people of Israel went into their tents. They had heard this bad report. And the scripture says that their hearts melted within them. There was no courage whatsoever to follow the Lord. And they began to accuse God that he had purposely brought them out there so they could die. I guess there wasn't enough graves in Egypt that he had to bring us out here in the wilderness so that we could die out here. In other words, they were saying, God is not the God of life. God is the God of bringing us out here to just all die. What a terrible thing to say about the Lord, given all that the Lord has done, all the promises he's made. They're saying the exact opposite in the face of God as to what God's purpose and goal is. Rather than going back and saying, hey, God, you know, you promised us this land, but it looks kind of tough. What, what, what are we going to do? In other words, Lord, what are you going to do to help us with it? They skip that part. They skip asking God for what are you going to do to help us? They just make the summary decision. God is not going to help us. He's not with us. We're going to go in and we're going to be in deep trouble because God is not obviously going to lead us in properly. And he's not going to help us with the enemies in the land as we uproot them from the land so that we can receive the promise of the land. Now, upon doing that, what we're looking at is chapter 14 and where they make the other accusations. We're going to die. Our children will die at the hand of the enemy and so forth. I mean, they accuse God of all manner of things at this point. And the, the counter argument to all of this is, that's made by Moses and Caleb and Joshua is, verse 9, only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they shall be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the, uh, the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. And they stopped them from being stoned. Let me tell you why this is such an important part of the story for us as end-time saints. For those of you who followed the teaching about the greater exodus, so let me give you the scenario of what we're anticipating in our days according to the prophecies. Now, we're going to have this altar up in Jerusalem. It's going to be doing the daily sacrifice. It's going to be the season of winter, and suddenly the forces of the Amasai are going to be very opposed to this altar because it represents God's ownership of the whole earth. And they come up and they stop the daily sacrifice. And when they do that, they now have satisfied the first part of the prophecy of Daniel called the abomination of desolation. They have ceased the daily sacrifice. And about a month later, the Antichrist is going to have his image set up on the Temple Mount and the false prophet is going to call for all men in the world to bow down before him, to worship him, and to recognize him as the leader of the whole world. Now, we're going to see all that, and we're going to be saying, okay, well, what's next for us? 
And very shortly thereafter, we're going to have a Passover. And the Passover is the start of the Exodus. You remember the ancient Passover? Then, then they had the Exodus that followed. So we're going to eat the Passover with our brethren. And the next day is the day we start leaving. We're going to pack up and we're going to go. And we're going to go out to the camps, you know, where the Lord's going to take us to in the wilderness of the peoples, as Ezekiel says. And just like we do Sukkot every year, we're going to go and we're going to like do Sukkot. And we're going to go into camp like we do in Sukkot. And we're going to be there in Sukkot. Now, lots of other interesting things are going to happen. We're going to have the sealing of the 144,000. We're going to see the Anamasiah begin to come to power. And here we are setting out in the camp. And it's only been a short period of time. And all of a sudden, not a whole lot is happening where we're at. And apparently other things are happening around the world. And all of a sudden, people in our camp are going to go, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that we've done the right thing. You know, and by the way, you know, who's this guy that led us out here to do this? And what about all these other people and so forth? You know, and I'm, uh, by the way, I can't spend my money out here. You know what we need to do? We need to go back to town. And essentially the children of Israel, when confronted with this, they said, we need to go back to Egypt. We need to get another leader and lead us back to Egypt. Let's go back and be slaves again back there in Egypt. And they are going to say, well, let's go back to the world. I guess I'll go back to my job. I'll go back to working on my retirement again and all that. Let me go ahead and tell you something about the people here in the wilderness with the idea, let's go back to Egypt. They have failed to understand something when they left Egypt. God destroyed Egypt, destroyed their crops, their herds. He destroyed the whole land of Egypt. There's nothing to go back to. When they left, Egypt was in shambles. They're in Egyptian history. I'm not making this up. In Egyptian history, they have found this period that we believe is the same time as the story of the children of Israel leaving Egypt, where the Egyptian historians said there was a period of 40 years where Egypt was just dead. No crops. The people didn't live there anymore. It was just dead. And then after the 40 years, then the people in Egypt began to grow and reestablish themselves after that. In the day that we're going to be living, when we go into the camp and you're sitting there in the camp waiting a little bit, you do realize the prophecies of the great tribulation have just begun. And by the way, look at the judgments in the book of Revelation. The judgments in the book of Revelation say that God is going to whack the entire world that we were living in. He's going to destroy the grass. He's going to destroy the sea. He's going to destroy the trees. He's going to destroy waters, make them bitter. He is going to whack the whole place. What is there for you to go back to? You think you're going to go back to your house and your neighborhood and everything's going to be the same? Those people will be in trouble. They'll be hurt. You can, you're not going to be able to go down to the grocery store and get what you thought you used to do. You won't have to worry about car insurance either. And the whole place has been whacked, and it gets worse 
for the next three and a half years. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And as the Bible says, it's a time of distress as the world has never seen before. Worse than what happened to Egypt? Yes. Worse. So this business of you go out with God, you're part of God's program, you're going to do something, you're in a journey to the promised land, and all of a sudden you balk, and you say, well, we can't do it. It's too hard. What are we going to eat? You know, we're in great danger. There's threats coming against us. We, we can't go forward. Let's say you're in the first camp, and the idea comes up, well, we're going to pack up. We're going to go a couple of states. Well, we can't do it. It's too hard. I mean, how, how are we going to get everybody there? Blah, blah, blah. They'll list every excuse they possibly can. And a whole bunch of them are going to balk. Now, what's the lesson? Don't balk. Follow the Lord. And so what that comes down to is we're supposed to learn the lesson from the wilderness. By the way, this is what Paul was talking about. Now, those things that happen in the wilderness are for our admonition and our instruction upon whom will fall at the end of the ages. I'm going to tell you what's going to be the first test, the first big test, once we get in the camp. A bunch of people are going to rise up and say, ah, let's go back. Can't do it, brethren. You've already made the decision. You're going forward with the Lord. The Lord is going to have to save you. Do you believe that? Well, these people, all of a sudden, after seeing all the signs of the Lord, didn't believe that. We are going to see all these prophecies fulfilled, and then we're not going to believe them for the rest. It's really tragedy that's coming. I am praying right now that when we get into those days, that somehow we'll go back to the story and say, what happened to them? And one of the following things here is, they get judged by God. Let me read to you the judgment now upon what had taken place. And it says, verse 22, Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. You can take those words out right now, and you can park them into your future, and you better hope that God doesn't say that to you. Because this is the way he judges people who balk and refuse to follow him, especially those that become fearful those who think God is not capable of being able to deliver his people, those that have filled with unbelief. Now, I know this is wild and crazy. Guys, just stop and think about this for a moment. You know, we read this Bible about all this historical stuff that's taken place, and we go, praise God. And then we are here in the present day, we're walking around in and like me, you know, I get up every morning, I'm kind of an older gentleman, I get up every morning, and I gotta, I gotta have a new surge of hydraulic fluid injected into me to get all of my joints and ligaments to work, and then I learn to stand again every morning, and then I learn to walk again every morning, and I go through this routine because I have lived this life long enough that I have to wake my body up, 
and so I can function in the daytime. And by the way, this gets old. You don't have to do this for too many years before. This is just plain old. And it, it takes you down. It pulls on you where you don't feel like you want to do things. You want to slow down and so forth. Somewhere around 1 to 2 o'clock is when your brain says, man, you need a nap, you know, and, and things catch up with you. And then you got the other fellow out there who's still got a body, and he's just going to work every day. Every day going to work, coming back, doing the routine. Got all these mothers and wives out there doing the laundry, fixing supper, taking care of the kids. We all got these routines. And it's, it's absolutely incredible that we know this God who has something planned in the future for us that would require us give up your entire routine and follow me. Hmm. And of course, there's somebody in the back of my head that's going, well, wait a minute, what, is he going to do anything for those, those aching bones, those joints that need a little help in the morning? And the mother's thinking about, how do I take care of my kids? What about the laundry? The guy, he's going, how am I going to make a living if I walk away from this job and I'm out here just camping with the Lord? I mean, what, what am I going to do? And there's all these incredible things that are highly disruptive to our normal daily routine. And the closer we get to the coming of the Lord, the more and the more the daily routine is gone. As I have shared with you before, once you know the Great Tribulation has started, you can forget your retirement program, brethren. It no longer is applicable to your life unless your retirement's coming in in the next three years. And of course, at that point, the whole world is destroyed. And so what are you going to do with that? It, it, it's really fascinating in my mind, this transition that we're going to go through. In looking back at this passage and this story, it was in a huge transition for the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, having had this spectacular experience at the base of Mount Sinai, building the tabernacle and all those things, and getting ready to go to the land, and suddenly they think all the daily routine stuff that they used to deal with, somehow it's going to block them from doing all these incredible things that God is doing. Now, we're living in a world right now where it's becoming increasingly, we have to be careful when we leave our houses and go out into public. People get killed. I mean, in podunk little towns as well as big cities. And it's increasing. The, the harm, the crime, the, the harm that men are doing is increasing. It's like what the Messiah said. The love of many will grow cold leading up to the Great Tribulation. And it's very harmful out there. People don't treat each other as humans anymore. The guilty are called righteous, and the righteous are called guilty. And the world's upside down. So going out there, you know, we're all being trained to be cautious and vigilant. Well, can you imagine giving up the basic security of the city and where you're at now with your home and, and the, how vigilant you would have to be in that situation? It'll be frightening for a lot of people. Very frightening. And it may be debilitating to them. It may cause them their faith, which isn't strong enough. It may overwhelm what faith they have. By the way, the scripture talks about a great falling away of faith at the end. 
And we don't want to make this mistake that was made here because essentially what happened in the judgment, that whole generation that participated in this, God said, you're going to die in the wilderness. You will not go into the promised land. So I'm going to march you around here for the next 40 years until all of you die. Wow. That is being judged for unbelief. The spies that came back and, and, and gave the bad report, it specifically says of them that God put a plague on them. They immediately got sick and they died. And by the way, this was so pervasive, even Moses and Aaron had to die in the wilderness. Neither one of them got to go to the promised land. Now, let's step back and think about that for a moment. Let's talk about God's form of justice. All these people saw God's judgments in Egypt. They all trusted the Lord. They were all covered by the blood of the Lamb. They all came out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea. They all went to Mount Sinai. They heard God speak his word and his commandments. They had all of these experiences, and they didn't make it into the promised land. Wow. Now, Monty, do you think those people will actually make it into the kingdom? And the answer I have to give you, and it's based on my belief in the mercy of God, I believe we will see those people in the kingdom. But they weren't going to the promised land then. But what's the lesson for us? Hey, guys, do not make this mistake because we really are going to the promised land this time, the real promised land. And if you, because of unbelief, and your faith shrinks back, and you begin to argue against what God has said and done, and you begin to become an obstacle of faith to other brethren in the camp, guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to die. You're going to die. You're not, you're not going to make it. So there's a, a pretty serious lesson here for us to learn out of this story about sinning in the spies. So let's move forward here a little bit now, and we come to the part where we're going to discuss essentially what is happening now that they're now in the wilderness, and they're starting marching around in the wilderness. God's going to begin to teach certain specific things, and there's some very profound things here about understanding how the law actually works. Chapter 15, he says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land where you live, which I'm giving to you, then make an offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering, a sacrifice to fulfill a special vow, or as a freewill offering, or your appointed times, to make a soothing aroma to the Lord from the herd and from the flock. I want you to understand the wording what he just said. You're still going to make it to the promised land, but let me tell you what you're going to do when you get to the promised land. You're going to make a sacrifice. The first One of the first things you're going to do, you're going to make a sacrifice to me once you enter the land. So he's immediately now optimistically talking about somebody's going to make it to the land. Maybe that group that didn't have enough faith, they're not. But he's still working with the remnant. He's still working with the people that are going to make it. And that's what you want to be. You want to be one of the ones he's still working with when we get there. All right, let me take you down here because I want to deal with 
a very profound statement that's made here about the law and how it applies. You know at the time that this is happening, based on the number of men, 603,550 that are in the army of Israel, that number is way too large to understand the progression of four generations after the 70 souls from Jacob went down into Egypt. Now, the Bible says 70 souls that came from the loins of Jacob went down into Egypt. They're down there four generations. Actually, they were down there on the order of a couple of hundred years. That 430 years thing that you've heard about, that's not what the, that's not a count of going into Egypt. That's the count that goes all the way back when God prophesied to Abraham that his descendants would go down to Egypt, that they came up exactly to the day 430 years after God had told Abraham that. They were actually in the land approximately 230 years, four generations. Now, I don't care how you do the math, and I don't care what the birth rate you think is. There's no way that you can get 70 souls to turn into 603,550 men of, of the army and with all the resulting other family surrounding them, an entire assembly of over 3 million people. Because it's 3 million people standing at the base of Mount Sinai that came out of Egypt. So this is one of the things that goes back and Moses is going to address this. Who is it that is the children of Israel at this point? Well, we have the native born of Jacob. It's called the house of Jacob. We have those that actually are of that physical lineage, but we also have, the scripture says, aliens and sojourners. They're in the camp too. So what are aliens and sojourners? Well, they're not native born of Jacob. There are other peoples that are with the native born of Jacob, and they believe in the God of Israel. And by the way, as I told you before, Egypt is being destroyed. There's a whole lot of people in Egypt, when they saw what God was doing to Egypt, they wanted to get out of there. So here's this group, the house of Jacob, they're leaving. So they said, can we go with you? And they joined up with them. By the way, the alien means someone who is from another country, but he's now dwelling with you. He's living with you. A sojourner is someone who still has residence back in another country, but he's traveling with you. So we have these three groups of people, a native-born, aliens, and sojourners. And the Bible says that when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, it was a mixed multitude. There was many different peoples you know, that we're in there. Now, they're all counted, are you ready for this? They're all counted as being part of the tribes of Israel. You know, that Caleb fellow that's now in charge of the tribe of Judah, he wasn't a native born. He wasn't from the tribe of Judah. He had been appointed to be in charge, although he was from another people's, but he was with the tribe of Judah, and he became the leader of the tribe of Jesus. and he wasn't even native born. And God's intention, quite honestly, is to save the whole world, not just one little family. He had to start with a family, but now he's going to save the whole world. And we see this taking place here. By the way, there's a very fascinating <laughs> verse up in Acts 
and Acts chapter 7 that refers to this group, are you ready for this, as the church in the wilderness. Did you hear that? The church that was in the wilderness. This group of people is referred to by the New Testament as the church. And the word Greek word for church that we use, ecclesia, if you take the root definition, it means the called out assembly. Who was the first called out assembly? It was the children of Israel called out of Egypt. Now, with that said, and here's the whole group, I wonder how the rules of the camp really work. You know, we got the, we got the Ten Commandments, we got the Torah, we were at Mount Sinai, everybody was there. I wonder how the rules work. Now, I love this thing that Eddie Chumney every once in a while shares, and he says, let me explain to you what didn't happen at Mount Sinai. What didn't happen was God said, okay, Moses, I want you to take all the native-born, and I want you to have them stand right over here. I am going to give the native-born the Ten Commandments on the tablets, and I'm going to give him the Torah. Now, Moses, I want you to take the, the aliens and the sojourners. I want you to stick over here, and I'm going to be telling them, I just want you to love God and love everybody else. That, that's all you have to worry about. I'll give you grace. Just love God, love everybody else. You don't have to worry about the Torah that I'm giving to these people over here. That did not happen. I don't care what your churchman wants to tell you. That didn't happen. That is not the plan of God. The plan of God and what he actually did was he gathered all the people and he spoke his commandments to all of them. And then he went into detail and he said, this is a commandment for the native born and for the alien and the soldier. Every major commandment has that statement in there. No one is to be excluded from the commandments of God. It applies to every human being that believes in the God of Israel. Now, with that said, let me read some verses to you. Chapter 15, beginning at verse 11, it says, Thus it shall be done for each ox, or for each ram, or for each of the male lambs, or of the goats. According to the number that you prepare, you shall do for everyone according to their number. All who are native shall do these things in this manner, in presenting an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord. And if an alien sojourns with you, or the one who may be among you throughout your generations, and he wishes to make an offering by fire, a soothing aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so he shall do. There's no special rules about how Gentiles are supposed to bring a sacrifice different from the native born. By the way, let me stop for just a moment. Did you know what? the Pharisees and the Sadducees did in Jerusalem in the days of Yeshua the Messiah. They built another wall. It was called the Middle Wall of Partition. So this was a wall that it was around the temple courts. It was up on top there, but it was a wall that was around, and it was called the Wall of Partition, and a Gentile could not go past that to make an offering to the Lord. In fact, it was said there that if he did, it was under threat of death. He, they'd kill him. God never instituted that the Gentiles come to a certain point, and then that's as far as they can do it. He said, a Gentile who wants to make a sacrifice to me, 
he can come in just like the native born do and present his sacrifice as well. In the second temple period, in the time of the Pharisees and Sadducees, in the days of Yeshua, the children of Israel and the religious leadership was not obeying the Torah, particularly on this point. As a result, from them not doing it, we have this theology that has sprung up in the world, which is said there's a difference between a Jew and a Gentile when it comes to the Lord. Jews get to go to the temple, Gentiles don't. That's not according to Moses, and that's certainly not according to Yeshua. And Paul specifically says that part of the reason why judgment will come upon Jerusalem and the temple is to tear down the middle wall of partition. In 70 AD, the Romans came and destroyed the temple. Guess what they also knocked down? The middle wall of partition. And now in our faith, we specifically say of the Messiah that he's taken down that middle wall of partition and each one of us are able to come before God directly just like anybody else. So here's the statement that says, Gentiles are supposed to be able to make sacrifices just as the native born do. Let me read a little bit further. Verse 15, as for the assembly, there shall be one statute for you and one and, and for the alien who sojourns with you, a perpetual statute throughout your generations, as you are, so shall the alien be before the Lord. There's to be no distinction. But I love this verse, verse 16. There is to be one law, one ordinance for you and for the alien who sojourns with you. Brethren, I'm a Torah teacher. I'm coming to you and I'm saying in this modern messianic movement, I recognize there's a whole lot of brethren in the assembly and they're not of Jewish background directly like me. I got it. You come from the other nations, you, you know, and so forth. I teach that the commandments that God gave to me are the same commandments that he gave to you. That my privileges to come and worship the Lord, you have the same ones. That there's no distinction between you and me when it comes to come before the Lord. That the distinction that we all have is God distinguishes the priests even from me. He distinguishes the Messiah and so forth. Well, you have the same thing. In other words, what God set up here, that's in truth a fact what the Messiah has set up as well. The Messiah not only built the temple in my heart as a Messianic Jewish guy, but he built it in your hearts too. Now, here's the real kicker on this whole thing. See, I kind of know a little bit about my background. I can't go back and swear every piece of it. By the way, the research I've done, I got a lot of people who say, yeah, yeah, I'm, that's the line I come from. They trace me all the way back to the house of David. Okay, great. But what about all the rest of you? You know, Ancestry.com, 23andMe, everybody's trying to figure out where they come from. I have news for you. It doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference if your grandmother lit candles on a Friday night back when you were younger and there's a possibility you might be Jewish. It doesn't matter. We are all one assembly. And this Torah belongs to you. And we are to teach it to you. These commandments apply to you. Now, this is not without controversy in the world today. First of all, you know 
that most Christian teachers say, no, the law has been done away. It's been replaced by the New Testament. So we're up against the wall on that one. And that's the vast number of Christians that are coming in the Messianic movement. They've been taught the law doesn't apply to you. So here I am teaching, no, the law does apply to you, and you need to learn it. Then we also have some of my Messianic Jewish brethren in some of the other organizations. They don't want you to be taught the law. They are following Judaism's teaching on this point. And what Judaism has taught is that you're only, as a Gentile, if you want to come and worship the God of Israel, you only have to call, keep the seven commandments that were given to Noah, and they call it the Noahide law. They say, you don't get the Torah, you follow the commandments that God gave Noah. Well, that's ridiculous, because I'm showing you right here, people after Noah, God specifically say, no, they're supposed to follow the Torah as well. Some of my Messianic Jewish brethren coming out of a Judaism background, just like some of you come out of a Baptist background, are still holding on to that. And so there's some controversy about me and my ministry with some of my Messianic brethren, and you may hear the complaint, oh, he's a one law teacher. You see that verse here? There will be one law for everybody. They're actually using this verse against me. I got to tell you, I love it. Anytime one of my enemies and people, they're quoting scripture at me and saying, I'm following what the scripture says, and they think that's a complaint, I'll take that complaint all day long. Yes, please accuse me before God when I have to give an account that I went around teaching that the commandments were for all people. Please accuse me of that. That's the one I want to stand before the Messiah and have all kinds of evidence that says, yes, that's what I did. All right, more that's in this portion. Our time has run out. I'm going to, in the next teaching, I'm going to touch on another important principle as we get into the next teaching. And I look forward to next Sabbath when we can open the Torah up again. Shabbat Shalom to all of you. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.